This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. I hope everybody had a wonderful holiday season, Shana Tova. We took a little bit of a break for the month of Tishrei, and now we're back with less than one week before national elections here in Israel. And this has been a very exciting election cycle uh, because we see a lot of movement dynamic movement within different sectors of Israeli society, within different tribes in the Jewish world here. And I decided uh, it'd be a good idea to bring uh, my friend Shemai Siskin back to the show. Uh, he's been on a few times, always a popular guest, and I enjoy bringing Shemai on the show just before and after elections to get his take on some of the major issues making headlines here in Israel. So uh, Shemai, welcome to the show. Hey, Yoda. Thanks so much for having me back. So let's jump in. We're, we're almost at election day. You know, I'm impressed with some of the campaigns I see. Um, I think that uh, some of the reactions to certain politicians are interesting. They give us a sense of where society's going or different sectors of society are going. Uh, wh- what's your take? Do you see that too? Or, or do you see this just as, uh, as, as all the elections before? Yeah, so you mentioned uh, in the preamble a little bit about the movement about the movement in the different um, different tribes, different population sectors, so to speak. I think that that's really something that uh, that makes this election unique. We're seeing parties being being very explicit about this that they're that they're that they're openly uh, openly discussing how their traditional uh, bases, their demographic bases, um, are shifting are shifting. I, I mentioned to you before before we started recording. How I recently came across uh, an article in the Haredi publication, Tzarich uh, Yun, that uh, talked about how uh, how basically the Haredi parties are uh, are hemorrhaging voters, um, despite the fact that the Haredi population has been going up consistently for many years. Their voter base that they can that they can count on is certainly not going up with that, and 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 is even showing signs of decreasing. Um, and it seems that they're going to. Like not just the you know the far right parties, but also to the more uh, center right parties, uh, including Likud, um, which I think for me is an indication, uh, at least to some extent, of uh, some type of a political maturity. And by maturity, I don't mean uh, becoming better uh, as opposed to worse necessarily, but uh, in the sense that they're expanding their political considerations. Um, whereas many uh, Israeli parties are essentially special interest groups that are hyper-focusing on one or two, maybe three issues. Um, really, when you go to a national election, ideally, we should be looking at the whole package deal because in the end of the day, running a country is uh, you know, a, set, a set of strategic interests, both internal and external, and all of those things need to be balanced. So political maturity is essentially coming to that realization. And we see that explicitly. Um, I think I mentioned to you also before we started talking, um, Shas, the Shas campaign is being very explicit about that. You mentioned the Khavati, the social aspect uh, that Shas is hammering home, which they might have not necessarily emphasized so strongly uh, in the past. And if they did, they certainly emphasized it differently. Um, it's a very, it's a very broad, more, uh, I would say, yeah, broader, like holistic perspective on the needs in running the country. I right. think we're seeing uh, like manifestations of that all over. Right. Uh, even someone extreme as Ben Gvir, uh kind of pulling back and saying that he's no longer uh, uh, the continuity of Kahana. That you know he's trying he's trying to he's trying to pull pull back pull back from uh, from from the image of the hardcore right wing extremists and say like I can be a little bit more towards the center. 
um, which I don't think is only a strategic move for him to tone himself down. I think it's also addressing the concerns of his own voter base, that his own voter base is, is uh, saying, like, we'd like to be a little bit more mellow. We'd like to be a little bit more toward the center and to be able to um, uh, include, incorporate and integrate more more things outside of our traditional narrow field of view. So that's my take on it in general, in a nutshell. Okay. First of all, I, I think you're right. I think Shas, for example, is running a great campaign uh, that I do want to speak more about. Uh, but before I do that, I'd like to take the opportunity, just because you mentioned, I think, at least three times this idea of uh, right wing or, or center um, on a political spectrum. And I just, you know, it, it's helpful for me. And I know a lot of listeners hear me talk about this a lot, but, but I think Chazara is important. I think you know, repeating new ideas, um, new ideas of Torah, new political ideas over and over and over again is helpful to really drive it home. Um, my perspective, and I think a lot of people, the vision movement, you know, we really see this linear political spectrum as limited to certain parties in our political system, uh, essentially what we'll call the Zionist parties or the parties of Yosef, the tribal force of Yosef meaning that you have those in Israeli society, those parties and those voters who essentially accept the ideological paradigm of Western liberalism. Those parties exist basically on a linear political spectrum that goes from merits to, let's say, Yemina or Bayt Yudi. But then there's parties that exist outside of that, and certainly Israelis who exist outside of that. I think those who vote for Haredi parties, for example, exist outside of that linear spectrum. They are not of the tribal force of Yosef, meaning uh, y Yosef being one of the you know sons of Yaakov, one of the tribes of Israel, but really the tribe of Israel that's really good at managing the material world is very focused on things like our security, economy, Jewish unity, I'd say also, and what we share in common with the other nations of the world, especially the dominant civilizations of any given period. And I think in every generation, in every major chapter of Jewish history, we see the emergence of this tribal force of Yosef, um, which, and, and I'm not saying good or bad, I think in this generation, you know, if we're going to define Zionism as Mashiach ben Yosef, as the movement of Mashiach ben Yosef, the messianic force of Yosef, when the talents of Yosef are directed towards Jewish national liberation, uh, which is essentially what the Zionist movement did, in our current kind of post-Zionist reality, where Zionism has already fulfilled its revolutionary role, brought the Jews home, created a state, an army, an economy, etc., um, now we're kind of living in this reality where um, the impulse of Zionism, the impulse of Yosef, the impulse of, of those who are manifestations of the tribe of Yosef in our world, their impulse is much more assimilationist once again to make Israel an Am Kocholamim, a nation like other nations, just kind of like a, a satellite of Western civilization in the Middle East, in the Semitic region. So I'd say that of the Zionist parties or of the Yosef parties, of the parties that really see themselves and see Israeli society as a Western society, you have this kind of linear political spectrum, very similar to what you would find you know, in Western countries, 
But then you have the Haredim, you have the Palestinians, you have the national religious. I think all of those groups exist outside of that linear spectrum. So I, like I, I would say that kind of like the right end of our spectrum is really probably somebody like Ayelet Shaked, and then you know somebody like Petzela Smotrich or Itamar Ben Gvir or Ariyadiri. They're really off that map. They're somewhere else. They're not really. They're not really to the right of that or to the left of that. They're just kind of somewhere else. And I think Derry, the, the Shas party and its leader, Arya Derry, uh, really serves as a great example of this because, you know, their campaign is actually a campaign I tried to push on a member of Knesset I worked for almost 20 years ago, um, but he didn't want to do it. Like he wasn't interested in going in this direction. And I see Shas doing it right now. Um, I thought it was brilliant almost two decades ago, and I think it's brilliant now. They just basically put out a commercial saying they're Jewish, they're nationalist, and they're chavrati, which you mentioned before. Chavrati in English means like social or, or socially progressive, meaning one of their major issues in this election cycle is food stamps, saying that we want to bring food stamps to those people who need it here. And that's a pretty left-wing policy in any Western country. Uh, but at the same time, someone like Derry knows that so many of his voters, including those interested in food stamps who are really struggling and could use assistance, they want Benjamin Netanyahu to be prime minister, despite the fact that he's, you know, nationalism aside, you know, he's considered to be very right-wing on socioeconomic issues, at least in his worldview, not necessarily in practice all the time, um, but certainly sometimes. And the fact that somebody like Derry is saying a vote for Shas is a vote to make Netanyahu prime minister, Netanyahu, uh, who himself is a champion of liberal economic policies, while Derry is running on very progressive social policies. I think that already speaks to the fact that a linear political spectrum doesn't really work in a country like Israel, or at the very least should be very limited to the parties that really see themselves and want to see themselves as parts of the West. Right. That's a very, very fair point. Uh, I, I do think for sure, if there is a spectrum here in Israel, it certainly doesn't map on to the traditional spectrum that uh, people are used to, like, let's say, in a country in the United States where there's like a set of policies that are associated with the more right-wing conservative base or worldview, and then there's a other set of policies that are associated with the other side. I think that if there is a spectrum, it doesn't break down clearly in the same way. And I think that what the example that you gave uh, with a party like Shas that considers itself to the right, perhaps on certain issues, is at the same time counting very progressive uh, socioeconomic policies. But I, 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 do, I do think at the same time it is, it is fair to say that there is that there is somewhat of a spectrum. I just don't think it breaks down quite in the same way. Um, I think that Israelis still view like economic, social policies in a very, very different, a very different light. Someone can be, you know, very, very, uh, very hawkish, let's say, on security issues. Um, and very, very strongly opinionated on uh, enforcing, let's say, the Jewish character of the state, but at the same time, touting outright socialist policies from an economic perspective. Which is Shas, which is essentially Shas. Right. Correct. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that therefore it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's a very good example. I think that because it's, because it's such a hodgepodge, like you're saying, like, because it doesn't map on to any, to any linear 
um, uh, map that exists in any other uh, developed country. I think that really with any election, it's important to hone in on like what are the the big issues of the day that happen to be like we've had, you know, five elections in less than in less than uh, four years now. So it's been, there's been a lot of switch up. But uh, the given issues that happen to be that happen to be on the map uh, while it's going and to see where to see where the different parties kind of fall on that map. I think that that's the best way to get an accurate picture of what's going on. Right. I think the the best way for understanding Israel's political system is, you know, as I said with Yosef, through the tribal identities. I think that when you look at the 12 tribes of Israel and how they manifest historically through different types of personalities, but with different focuses and, and different visions for what Israel should be and different ways of trying to achieve that, I think you essentially get a very clear understanding, a deep understanding of Israeli society and maybe the broader Jewish world. Like, uh, you know, like, like for example, Yisachar is the tribe that I would say the Haredim represent. Uh, they are very focused on, or traditionally very focused on teaching Torah and learning Torah without much emphasis or attention given to national political historical issues. Um, you have the tribe of Yudah, which like Yosef is a leadership tribe. While Yosef focuses on what we share in common with the other nations of the world, you know, nationhood, economies, army, infrastructure, etc., um, Yehuda is very focused on what makes us different, what makes us special, what makes us unique, uh, what makes Israel unlike other nations, what is our unique mission in history, what role do we have to play? In Would you agree that both that both Yehuda and Yosef traditionally, the tribes and the paradigms, have been the two tribes slash paradigms that have been the leadership forces in the Jewish people traditionally? I'm talking about like over 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 thousands of years, going back to biblical times. It yes. really, it really breaks down between the Yehuda paradigm versus the Yosef paradigm. Who's going to be the one that's going to be in charge, so to speak, that's going to take the helm and try to create unity out of these disparate interests? Yeah, for sure. I think those are the two rivals for leadership within Israel. Again, going back thousands of years, you could even see it in the times of the Kingdom of Israel and the Kingdom of Yehuda. The Kingdom of Yehuda was led by a king from the House of David, from the tribe of Yehuda. The kingdom of Israel, uh, the Israeli kingdom, was most of the time, or certainly at its high points, right, led by a tribesman of Ephraim, which is one of the sub-tribes of Yosef. So I think for sure you see this rivalry playing out throughout history, and each one has satellite tribes, meaning uh, Dan, the tribe of Dan, is the um, extreme expression of Yosef. I would say that the tribe of Dan manifests in this world through Israelis who vote for Palestinian parties or diaspora Jews involved in movements like BDS. Um, that's the tribe of Dan. Those who really have trouble with the notion of Jewish national consciousness and have for the most part adopted the perspective of Israel's critics. Almost assimilationist. Yeah, um, I mean, Yosef, has this assimilationist impulse, but I think Don takes it further. Uh, but but we have to remember that, you know, the prophet uh, Ovadia teaches that uh, Yaakov is like fire, Esav is like straw, and Yosef is the flame. 
And the Rashi teaches us that when Yosef was born, that's when Yaakov knew that he can come back to the land of Israel and confront his brother Esav, meaning that Yosef is the part of Israel that can be like Esav, has the ability to be like Esav, you know, in terms of managing the material world. Um, also wants to be like Esav, meaning looks, especially today, looks at Western civilization and tends to emulate it and see it as like the example by which Israel should live up to. It certainly sees the advantages, the advantages that are created by the systems and and um, and even ideologies that Esav creates and has an impulse to integrate them, to bring them in. Yes, um, and also Yosef is the power within Israel that can defeat Esav, that could destroy Esav. But it's interesting that it's not actually, you know, when we look at the historical figure of Esav, it wasn't Yosef who killed him. It was Hushim, son of Dan, meaning it was somebody from the tribe of Dan, you know, the, the son of Dan ben Yaakov, yeah. who actually kills Esav. Meaning that when Ovadia, who ironically, or maybe not ironically, comes from Esav and becomes an Israelite, meaning he actually went through a Giyur process to become part of Israel, but he was originally from uh, the people of Esav. When he prophesizes about Yosef destroying Esav, you know, that could include Dan. Dan is like a satellite of Yosef, but it's also interesting that it's the tribe that has, for the most part, gone over to the side of Israel's critics, who essentially would identify as like the left. Like if there's like a real left in Israel, it's the tribe of Dan. They're the ones who, practically speaking, actually tear down the empire. That's very interesting. I never thought about it that way, actually. How would you see a modern version of Dan participating in the downfall of Esau? Like what would be the modern version of that? Essentially, we could say that, that those Jews who are expressions of the tribe of Dan are essentially those Jews who end up leading revolutionary, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist movements. Huh. Uh, the, That's very interesting. Right, right. What, what they're missing in most cases, whether we're talking about Karl Marx or uh, we're talking about uh, certain people today, what they tend to be missing is the Jewish national consciousness, the like identification with the people of Israel and our story. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That is interesting to observe. This is a whole. I mean, I'm just. This, this could go. <laughs> this could lead us down to a rabbit hole. But, 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 but the point that you just mentioned before, the the Jewish participation and tends to be the assimilationist Jewish participation um, in radical movements um, in Western civilization that really contributed to drastically changing the countries in which they live, whether it was communism or whether it was uh, other uh, other revolutionary movements more recently, like in the United States. Uh, the assimilationist Jews tend to be tend to play a, a prominent role there. It's, it's a very interesting point. I admittedly never thought about it that way. That's that's, uh, that's very interesting. Right, so, so at the same time, I would say on the Yehuda side, there are also satellite tribes that serve as extreme expressions of Yehuda, like Shimon and Levi. So we could say that Shimon are the Kahanistim, or maybe in some cases the Hilltop Youth, or the guys from uh, Yitzar, who when uh, Palestinians in Huara are throwing rocks at uh, at Jewish cars driving through Hawara, you know, you got the guys from Yitzar who come down and start fighting with the Palestinians. You know, and, and when I say fighting, I mean like really, you know, like burning things down and, you know, like those, yeah. I would say that that's Shimon. And then you have, uh, maybe Levi could be seen as the more intellectual extreme expression of Yehuda, like uh, Haramor. Like the Haramor, yeah. 
Yeah, so so like the Noam party. So essentially, the what we call the religious Zionist party is ironically not even a Zionist party in this context. It's not a Yosef party at all. It's really a combination of Yehuda, Shimon, and Levi. Yeah. And so it's very like, interesting. So it's off that map, you know, and 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 it's fluid, by the way, because like uh, one thing you mentioned before is the fact that the Haredi sector is growing, the population is is growing. But it's not being reflected in the strength of the Haredi political parties, and that kind of speaks to the fluidity of understanding these tribal identities. That you have a lot of younger, especially younger male Haredim, who are becoming Kahanistim, who are essentially moving from Yisachar to Shimon. Uh, and if you look at uh, Ben Gvir's core appeal, I mean, I think he's done an impressive job building beyond his own base. Like I think Ben Gvir, unlike Smotrich and a lot of the other guys in that combination of parties, Ben Gvir actually has appeal, ironically, to uh, more sectors of Israeli society, you know, more broadly, like the broader Israeli society. I think socioculturally, he's more familiar and more accessible than somebody like Smotrich and certainly Avi Maoz. But his core supporters are essentially young Haredi men who are becoming what we can call soft Kahanistim. Right, right. I agree. I, I mean, you use the word fluidity there. I don't, I don't know if it if it speaks to the fluidity more than it speaks to to what I was saying before the political maturation mm -hmm. of people with a certain with a certain with traditionally that they have you know a very narrow range of interests when it comes to politics. They're realizing that there are interests, that there are additional interests that they themselves have that are outside of that of that purview that they want to incorporate and bring in. I would say that that the that the Haredi men that form the core of someone like Benzvir is essentially the same phenomenon that we see the growing support within the Haredi community of someone like Bibi. Meaning, in the end of the day, it's just people realizing that uh, you know support for the Yishi votes. And uh, you know maybe other other uh, social programs that allow that Torah study focused lifestyle to continue. Those are not the only issues that they care about. They themselves care about additional things. Um, and I think that really, in the end of the day, both of those phenomenon—again, the Haredim moving to the support of Ben Gvir and the Haredim moving to the support of Bibi—they're essentially rooted in the same phenomenon of people realizing that there's that there's that there's other considerations um, like when it comes to national elections. I think that on the whole, that's a good that's a good thing. That's a good thing. People stepping out of the special interest group mentality, and this is something that I really wanted to touch on before when you brought up the idea of Yehuda versus Yosef being the two leadership paradigms. Because you know, like when someone reads the stories of the Tanakh and they see uh, they see the position of uh, of someone like Yosef, who it's very very clear that he has uh, outstanding managerial prowess. It's clearly he's gifted in that regard. So you would think he would be the natural uh, choice for the guy who's going to take the helm. But it's not it's not so simple because like Yosef, as you said, he comes with certain with certain ideological um, frameworks and certain ideological uh, considerations that might make him less fit than someone else. So it, it has always come down to who is going to be the one to integrate all the different interests of Israel. That's essentially the question. It's not a question of what's going to be the most dominant special interest, but rather who is going to be the one to pull all the different interests together. And I think that today we're still firmly within, perhaps not as firmly, but we're still firmly within 
um, the Zionist dominance paradigm, which means that Yosef is still the one pulling everyone together. Yosef is still the one in charge pulling everyone together. And that's manifested in things like you mentioned before, how someone like someone like Derry is still saying, like, vote for me because that's a vote for Netanyahu. Like, I want Yosef to be in charge. In the end of the day, I want Yosef to be at the helm. But again, that that's just part of this general trend of people realizing that, yeah, we have our interests, we have our narrow interests, but someone has to be at the helm that's going to be able to pull all the interests together. And on the whole, I'm actually very optimistic about that, that, that there's more and more people realizing um, that this approach is necessary. Like, yes, there are interests, there are special interests, but in the end of the day, there's got to be, there's got to be an integrated view, there's got to be a a holistic view and there has to be someone in charge that's going to be able to pull all that together. How do you feel about that assertion, that theory? No, well, I, I think you're largely correct. I have a I have a question, first of all, as to whether or not Netanyahu or the Likud party is still Yosef. Uh, I'm not sure that I would put Netanyahu in that category. Netanyahu, you know, as a person, as a public uh, personality, you know, I think he does a good job making himself very intentionally ambiguous like it's hard to understand sometimes whether netanyahu is really just like a self-serving political animal or an ideologue with like a deep vision for where israel needs to go um and i think he creates this ambiguity intentionally yes for sure in order to protect himself from the americans really uh, i think he learned his lesson first time around dealing with bill clinton in the 1990s that uh, he is not shamir you know, but, but there's this question, you know, when I talk about Yosef and Yehuda, it doesn't necessarily come down to like Torah observance. It sometimes really comes down to whether or not they're looking at the world and at current events through the ideological paradigm of Jewish history or through the ideological paradigm of Western liberalism or whatever is politically correct at any given point in history. You know, whether we're talking about like the Greco-Roman era, when I think a lot of the Yosef people kind of became Hellenists, you know, they went over to like the Hellenist worldview because that, that was what was dominant in the world and among the great empires of the world. Or in the time of Yosef Atzadik, in the time of Yosef himself, um, he was very enamored with Egyptian civilization. You know, one could even interpret his early dreams that caused his brothers to see him as dangerous as dreams that implied we should move to Egypt, we should merge with Egypt, uh, we should become farmers and not shepherds. Remember that at that time, Egypt was a great agricultural civilization and the children of Israel were shepherds. And suddenly he's having dreams that seem to be much more agricultural in nature than having anything to do with livestock. So I think that um, like uh, w where it might express itself is if you have any given social or political issue, somebody who is a manifestation of Yosef would look at that issue from the perspective of what is the politically correct position to take on this issue in terms of where the most advanced societies in the world have arrived at today. Uh, and somebody who is a manifestation of Yehuda might look at the same social or political issue and say, well, what would our ancestors have done in this situation? Uh, what would the characters in Tanakh do if they were confronted with this issue? You know, in some cases, somebody might just ask, what is a halakha? Um, but certainly, like, how does our people look at this? Uh, and I, I guess if I, if I want to give a 
somewhat controversial practical example, we could say uh, the role of Christianity in Israeli society. You know, somebody from the tribe of Yosef would say it's fantastic that the state of Israel is a place where all peoples can practice their respective religions free of persecution, and that makes us a great society. That makes us better than a lot of our neighbors. That makes us like the West, right? And, and I'm not taking a position necessarily here, but that is the perspective of Yosef, that like this is where the world has arrived, this is what is considered good, that everyone should have the right to practice their religion privately as they want, and the state of Israel should be the type of state that facilitates that, allows that, um, and promotes itself. That's like part of our identity from the Yosef perspective. Whereas somebody who's coming from a Yuda or Shimon or Levi perspective might say, uh, you know, our ancestors would have never allowed churches in this country. You know, the difference between a righteous king and a not righteous king, according to the Pshat, according to the surface level understanding of the text of Tanakh, is whether or not they permitted idolatry within our borders. Right. So you're looking at this one issue that can be seen from radically different perspectives. And often somebody from Yosef sees Yuda as dangerous, like chauvinistic, uh, out of touch with reality, out of touch with where the world has moved. And somebody from Yuda sees Yosef as a weak Jew who's just looking for the approval of Gentiles and doesn't have any connection to his own. <laughs> You know, to his own values. And that's that's the real friction. I think when you look at Israeli society, the frictions within Israeli society, saying things like right and left and liberal and conservative and religious and secular don't really describe the conflict accurately. Those are words that have almost nothing to do with our identity. Those are words that really grew out of another civilization and the experiences and evolution of that civilization. And when you try to apply them to, to Israeli society or to the Jewish world, really does not fit. Um, and I think that if you if you want to understand the conflicts, the frictions within Israeli society, that tribal breakdown is really much more helpful and much more accurate. Yes, that's well said. Very well said. I'd like, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to harp a little bit on the, on, the, on the specific point that you made before about the brothers perhaps viewing Yosef, and this could have been the emphasis to, uh, to kick him out of the family, kill him or sell him, what have you that his dreams, his vision for the future indicated, you know, this very um, like assimilationist um, attitude, perhaps wanting to, you know, leave, leave Canaan, leave the land of Israel, um, descend to Egypt, etc. Uh, it's interesting to point out, and I was just thinking about this, as you mentioned, um, Yosef was not the first character um, in that period of time of the patriarchs that, that made that shift to agriculture. Who was the first person that did that? Who was the first person that made the shift to agriculture? Of the patriarchs? Yitzchak, no? It was Yitzchak, exactly, exactly. Yitzchak is the first one, interestingly, um, he's kind of like an anomaly because his father is a shepherd, Abraham is a shepherd, uh, his son Jacob is a shepherd, his grandson, the tribes are basically shepherds. But he has this kind of like, this, this anomaly that he shifts at least to a short period to agriculture. He's very, very interested in the field. In fact, there's a there's a well-known section in the Talmud that Isaac viewed the, the divine through the experience of the field. Um, that was his spiritual paradigm as well, that he saw the, the interaction between the divine and the material world and through through the 
through the paradigm of the field, um, that there's that there's divine energy that imbues the land and that we work the land and we commune with that and we we become partners in that and that's how we like that's how we interact with the divine essentially. Um, he's very sade field oriented, um, which is why he's attracted to his son, to his firstborn son Esav, who's also described as a man of the field, Ish Sade. Uh, so it's only natural for him to consider Esav as as the one to carry the torch forward. Um, even though he sees that Yaakov is a spiritually oriented guy, he sits in the tent, he contemplates, he meditates, he studies the Torah, etc. But in terms of the person that's going to lead forward the nation and develop the nation, so Esav is just a natural choice. Um, and bringing that down to the next generation, like you said, I mean, this is all really coming full circle because, as you said, Yosef has this very powerful similarity to Esav that he's able to operate in the world. He's able to at least operate within the Esav paradigm but he will ultimately be the one to to bring about his destruction. There's there's a very interesting um, there's a very interesting midrash. It's kind of obscure, <laughs> but it it, 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 the, it says that despite the fact that the entire family thought that Yosef was dead um, at the time, or at least Jacob thought that Yosef was dead for that two decade period where he was separated from his family, the midrash says um, this is in Bereshit Rabbah for anyone who would like the reference. Uh, it says that Yitzchak knew. Isaac knew that Yosef was alive, like he knew prophetically that, that Yosef was alive. And it speaks to this idea that, that, that Isaac was really the first one to identify this need to have someone in the leadership position who can function in that way, who can function in the field, and how this was really what he wanted to push. Perhaps in the end of the day, he wasn't correct to choose Esau over Yaakov, because in the end of the day, you can't go with someone who has managerial prowess, but who's spiritually corrupt, um, but he at least understood that this is the direction that we need to go. We need to be able to bring in people that have the ability to function in this way, who have that paradigmatic approach to function in the Sadeh, in the field. Um, and that's why he understood that Yosef was alive. He just intuited that Yosef was alive. It couldn't have been that um, that, that force um, of Jewish consciousness was off the map. Like it's it's still it's still it still was there, um, and as we know, the prophet the prophet Ezekiel one of his one of his visions for the messianic era is that these two ideas kind of bind into one: the Yosef paradigm of integrating with the nations and taking from the nations what is valuable and what and what seems to work, um, and Yehuda on the other hand, which is as you said very very Jewish consciousness oriented, Jewish identity oriented, what makes us unique. Um, and that those that those two things will bind together, right? The vision of the two trees, right? The two trees that they kind of fuse into one tree. Um, yeah, and I, I think I think again that there's a lot of signs that this is that this is moving in a good direction. Just just the expansion of considerations, the integrating of more right, of more interests, of more political interests um, outside of a very narrow purview. Um, and I think I think that that I think that that's what we need to we need to continue to promote. That it's not an either or. Uh, question. It's really like the way that you put it before. There are some people that would ask, well, what would our ancestors do? So the question is not necessarily what would our ancestors do, but the question is how would our ancestors integrate all of these different things together? I think that's a much more sophisticated question and it's a much harder question to answer. Right. I agree with you. And that begs a follow-up question. Yeah. You know, as you, well, the way you put it was that Yosef happens to be the tribe that pulls all of the different interests together. Although I would say that's happening less and less because the tribes that are uh, very like consciously Yosef, or at least consciously committed to 
the values of Western liberalism as the dominant paradigm of Israeli society, they are becoming more and more sectoral in their behavior, in their rhetoric. Um, when, uh, I forget, for some reason, his name escapes me. Um, one of the members of Knesset in the Eshetid warned us that soon we're going to have uh, newscasters with mitpachot on their heads, with uh, head coverings on it, like, like female newscasters with their hair covered. Like that's where Israeli society is headed and we have to watch out. Or Meirav um, Mecheli pushing, you know, pushing for public transportation on Shabbat. Meaning it's interesting that as these shifts take place in society, the tribal force of Yosef, I guess, goes on the defensive to a certain extent. And as a result of going on the defensive, seeing itself and its values under attack by growing threats in society, growing threats in the Jewish world, they become uh, much more narrow and much more sectoral in their political behavior and in their political language. And, uh, and I think for us, a big challenge is going to be finding the right place for Yosef in Israeli society. Because right now, what, what, what Yosef has essentially done, what we've all essentially accepted, maybe without thinking about it too deeply, is that sure, Israel is full of different tribes, and uh, those tribes have different interests and uh, inclinations and uh, perspectives, and all of that is valid to a point, so long as we all accept the values and ideological paradigm of Yosef, whether we call it Zionism, whether we call it Western liberalism. Uh, and, and when I say Western liberalism, I'm including, I'm including both liberal and conservative social and political positions. But that's been the glue, like meaning that's been until now we've been we've been told that all of our private ideas are okay as long as as a collective we conform to that ideological paradigm, meaning that has to be the glue. And and I think that Yosef's role is not to be the leader and the paradigm of Yosef or the paradigm of Zionism is not meant to be the ideological paradigm that we all have to function within. But even when that's replaced by whatever comes after Zionism, and when maybe more Yudha forces are in charge, um, I think what is going to have to be prioritized is finding a healthy, productive place for Yosef within our national organism. You're saying specifically to find a healthy place for Yosef. Right, because Yosef is obviously not happy. The Zionist parties, you could hear it in their campaigning. Ah, uh, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Right, they're afraid of being replaced. They feel that the, the state they created, the army they created, the economy they created, the nuclear weapons they might have acquired, it's all going to fall into the hands of people like uh, Derry and Ben Gvir and Smotrich. And they're terrified. Right. So we, we're going to have to, even though just looking at the socio-political trajectory of Israeli society, it's obvious that these other forces that are now on the rise and, and terrifying so many people are ultimately going to become more and more dominant. Um, and it could be that Yosef will still exist as a tribe, but will no longer be the glue that's meant to kind of hold all the other tribes together. Um, we're still going to have to find the right place for Yosef in our national framework. Correct. Correct. I think that I think that this is really inevitable for for a variety of reasons. I mean, just demographics, just pure demographics alone. I, I think we've spoken about this issue in the past. Mm -hmm. um, 
that's clearly the direction that Israeli society is uh, is moving toward. And yeah, I I think that there are a lot of organic, like on the ground things that are happening that uh, that that kind of are addressing the problem that you're saying. The problem, namely, of where is Yosef going to be within the national um, within the national framework. Um, I think that you can see that with uh, with with, for example, just to give an example, the trend of more and more participatory frameworks for Haredim to be involved um, in national life. I mean, this started, you know, way back when in the in the army units that were set up uh, that were set up for Haredim. But you know, in recent years, this has really this has really exploded. I mean, just just things that I personally have observed in uh, the areas of education, um, areas of internal security, like the police. Um, like in many other sectors, it's uh, it's this very it's this very uh, grassroots almost type of thing. Obviously, there is a top-down initiative, uh, you know, from the side of the government. But um, in terms in terms of the people that are participating, it's very much an organic movement of more and more people that uh, traditionally would be more isolationist in terms of in terms of their lifestyle and how they conduct themselves, being more and more involved in that. Perhaps you could say it acquiring the skills of Yosef, acquiring those skills. So it could be that uh, even though the glue that ties us together will slowly shift to a different framework, to a more Yehuda-oriented framework, a very nationalist, Jewish-oriented consciousness, but those skills, the skills that Yosef brought to the table will not be, will not be jettisoned because everyone's going to realize that they have value. They have, they have what to contribute. So that's what I'm hoping for. And frankly, that's what I'm seeing in many, in many places. So... Again, I'm optimistic. I think I might be a little bit more optimistic than you. <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm extremely optimistic. I think we're going to figure it out, but we have to start doing the work. Right, right. I think we have to be more explicit about what actually is going on. I think I think that the trends are happening. These integrative trends are occurring. I think that we just need to be like very explicit about it. Like, yeah, guys, listen, we're riding the schism between Jewish-oriented national consciousness and awareness. And at the same time, reaping the benefits of of the modern dominant civilizations, like that's what's going on. And we need to get real and figure out how to balance these two things. So even though it's going on, I think that a lot of people aren't being explicit about the fact that that's happening. Um, so like when we get to a critical mass that we can be open about it and say that this is the challenge at hand, then I think that it'll I think that it'll go a lot to. A lot smoother, and and ironically, I think that will speed up the other trend that you pointed to, of the more fringe parties, like the more fringe Yosef parties, that uh, like like the assimilationist parties, being even more uh, defensive, being even more um, afraid of their existence, because they're going to see that yeah, these people, these people, uh, like they now they have a plan <laughs> about how to move forward and uh, and uh, and accrue even more influence and uh, and uh, and the ability to run the country. Just the point that I point to all the time. I mean, just if people like appreciate how much this shift has really happened. You know, just a few decades ago, Labor, the Labor Party, made up half of the entire Knesset. It was more powerful than uh, than Likud is currently. And today, you know, it's always a question of whether or not they're going to even get into the Knesset to begin with, let alone dominate the Knesset. Um, so this shift, this shift is really taking place organically over many, many years, and I think that it's sped up. Uh, in the past 10 years or, or even less, um, I think it's the direction that we're going. But I think that in order for us to be successful, we need to get real um, with, a, with a conscious awareness of what's going on. Um, and to the extent that we're aware of what's going on, we'll be better equipped to handle it. That's my, that's my take in a nutshell.
Right. No, I largely agree. You know, uh, Channel 12 uh, recently did a poll, like News Channel 12 recently conducted a poll of Israelis aged 18 to 25. And it found that uh, if Israelis aged 18 to 25 were the only Israelis voting in this election, um, the Likud, together with the Haredim and the national religious parties, would have 71 seats. Right. Now, that's, oh, wow. that's essentially where the country's headed. And again, like, you know, I think we've been saying, we really do need to have a real discussion over where Yosef can fit into that in such a way that is also, you know, good for Yosef, like good for the collective nation, but also good for Yosef himself, good for those Jews who really do see Western civilization as like uh, the ideological paradigm that we should accept. You know, how are we going to include those Jews who really do see the West as the model to emulate, who really who really do want a connection with the rest of humanity? Because that's also important. Like ultimately, you know, you know it's interesting in the very same Pasha where Yosef resists the um, powerful urge to sleep with Potiphar's wife. And we learned that had Yosef succumbed to that urge, it would have been his destruction. In that same parsha, we see Yehuda have relations with what he at the time thought was a sex worker on the side of the road. Turns out to be his daughter-in-law. It's a complicated story. If anybody's interested, by the way, in going deeper into some of these topics, you know, I have a whole podcast series on the book of Breshit and the book of Shemot, where we go much deeper into some of these issues. But just the fact that Yuda, again, it's not right, it's a transgression, he does tshuva, he comes back, but like, it's not destructive. It's actually a, a very critical moment in his development. Whereas for Yosef, such behavior would have been destructive. And, and I think that tells us something about the way we interact with the outside world. Um, like, like, I think we can look at this, th these episodes of, you know, sexual relations or almost sexual relations, with women who, who were not permitted to Yosef and Yuda as kind of teaching us something about our relations with the outside world. And you see that when Yosef or kings, for example, we spoke about the kingdom of Israel, of, you know, and one of the most powerful kings of the uh, Israelite kingdom, when he married the daughter of Hiram, when he married Izevil, the daughter of Hiram, the princess of Sidon, um, it's totally destructive for him and for his kingdom. Whereas Shlomo, who is a king from the tribe of Judah, when he has a relationship with Hiram, it was probably a different Hiram. Hiram is probably like Pharaoh, you know, like just like a title of all the rulers of, uh, of Tzidon. But Shlomo's relationship with Hiram was one that was positive and ended up with, you know, materials from Tzidon being donated to the construction of the first temple. Meaning the tribe of Judah is able to have a relationship with the outside world that's conducive to Israel fulfilling our mission in history and to being what we're supposed to be. Whereas when Yosef tries to have a relationship with the outside world, we're, you know, it, it's very, um, it, it's, Yosef comes to the world much more as a receiver than as a giver, you know, much more as someone who's being influenced than someone who's influencing. And I think ultimately uh. this, this drive to connect to the rest of humanity is part of our mission. That's part of what we're supposed to do, but we need to be strong in ourselves first. And I actually think that this like somewhat frightening, you know, from certain perspectives, somewhat frightening shift 
towards like very like nationalist forces within Israeli society is actually going to ultimately lead us to a much healthier universalism is what Um and I think that's where Yosef will ultimately shine um, but you need to go through Israel really embracing our true identity more like we need to really be us we need to be rooted in our story in our ancient teachings in our historic mission we need to be really rooted in our own identity to be able to have a positive relationship with the rest of humanity and therefore the jews who are most deeply rooted in our identity and in our national story are the jews who seem to be on the rise right now who seem to be becoming more powerful in society in politics etc uh, but ultimately i'm hopeful that that will lead us back towards a much stronger universalism in which we play a leading role and are not the tail we become you know on rosh hashanah you know we had the head of the lamb on our table and we say here it's on that israel should be the head and not the tail that we have what to give to the world but we can only give it when we know who we are and the only way we're going to know who we are is if we actually re-embrace our true identity and return to our roots yes agree agree 100 and i'll just i'll just add on to that 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 i i tell people all the time when they ask me like what is vision movement about um this is what i tell them i tell them that it's basically the assertion that all of our major problems emanate from the fact that we don't know who we are it's not this external factor or that external factor there are obviously external factors that we need to deal with like concrete real world considerations that we need to deal with um whether that's uh in the field of economics or dealing with the palestinians it doesn't matter like there are real world factors that we have to address but in the end of the day the problems emanate from the fact that we don't know who we are and the moment that we have a clear uh comfortable confident authentic understanding of who we are um that's 95 of the battle and there's and there's no better place to have these conversations i think that this might be the only place to have these conversations um is vision and and as we said it's it's only a matter of time before the people with this orientation are completely fully um in charge i think i think that that's, that's just clearly what we're seeing and that's why we need to take advantage we really need to take advantage of this time um of this period of these coming years to have a real conscious explicit conversation about what this looks like what like what does that mean to incorporate the tools of Yosef in the field of economics what does it mean to incorporate the tools of Yosef in the field of uh in the field of social policy and to integrate these things like what does that look like because very very soon it's not going to be theoretical questions very soon like the ball is going to be in our courts and we're going to have to make a decision on all these things like many decisions and the clearer we have an understanding of what that looks like now the easier it will be to actually put them forth when we have the opportunity to do it. So, Yishtarkoach Yehuda again for all of what you do. Thank you so much for having me on. And um, I hope that we can have more of these conversations moving forward because we need to have them. It's not an option anymore. That's very well said. There's one more thing I think we should talk about, and that's what we call the conflict taking place in the national religious world over these elections. And I think that you know you do have something called religious zionism which is basically yosef with a strong commitment to torah and mitzvot and obviously you know participation in jewish national life military economic etc um i think the main institution is gush yeshivat haratzion i think that is a religious zionist institution it is Yosef with Torah and they care about Torah they love Torah they learn Torah they're they're serious about Torah that's Yosef with Torah that is Gush um and I think that is the type of 
religious Zionism that exists in most of the diaspora, places like Cleveland, places like Manchester, places like Toronto, etc. Whereas you have this other thing, which I wouldn't call religious Zionist, I might call it national religious, that's kind of more Smotrich or Avi Maoz, you know, Yeshivat Merkazarav, Yeshivat Haramor, which seems to be the more dominant approach to Torah, certainly among Jews in the West Bank. Um, but I think in Israeli society more broadly, among people who identify as national religious, I think, or, or even call themselves religious Zionists, I think they happen to be more Yudah, Shimon, or Levi. But recently, we've been seeing a lot of online fighting over whether or not the Smotrich party, which of course includes Itamar Ben-Gvir, um, you know, at least in this run, whether or not that represents the values or the ethos of religious Zionism. And and I think that, uh, you know, you are a teacher in Yeshiva Kotel. I know that Rav uh, Terrigan, uh, who is, he's head of the overseas department, correct? Correct. Yeah, I know that he recently had a uh, Facebook post endorsing some, or it, it was a very flattering uh, Facebook post, you know, in regards to Bezala Smotrich. And, and he took a lot of heat from this other camp that might have seen him as, as part of them, uh, that might have seen him as a leader, might have seen him as a as a serious figure in their movement, you know, they were really horrified by his endorsement of Smotrich. And for them, you know, this really represents their camp being not what they wanted to be, but what they, through the through their ideological lens, see as a very ugly and scary and threatening movement. So do you want to talk a little bit about that friction or, or how it's playing out in the spaces where where you work and teach? Yeah, sure. I mean, I can't speak to the opinions of anyone else because I don't uh, I don't know them and I don't I don't want I don't want to speak for anyone. But I think um, in general, just looking at the phenomenon, for sure, there's this phenomenon. This is not new necessarily of the of the Torah, Torah oriented Yosef segments um, kind of not knowing how uh, or feeling outright uncomfortable with being at home with the more um, with the more extreme, let's say, parts of the Torah camp that explicitly reject the Gentile paradigms of doing things. Um, I think that I think that in places like Gush, perhaps in like in the residential areas themselves, like not just the yeshiva, but like the like the Jews that live in these places, um, they're very explicit about uh, how they are happy that they are able to integrate the Western liberal uh, paradigm um, into their Torah-oriented lifestyle. I think they're very explicit about that. Um, and that's a value that they hold. Yeah. Um, perhaps that could be a layover of something of something that like existed in the United States of like the Torah in Derech Eretz type of thing, like yeah. integrating Torah into the ways, ways of the world. Interestingly, I think that uh, this kind of circles back to, to what we were talking about earlier when you, you first mentioned, before you focused it on agriculture, when you first mentioned that Yosef was really not the first in our people's history or certainly amongst the Hebrews to adopt a certain position, I was thinking about Nahor, because Nahor was the brother of Avraham, who, who might have actually, you know, actually I would say, not just Nahor, maybe also Shem and Ever, and maybe even also Peleg and Reu and Serug and Nahor and Terach, etc. Like, I think that the Hebrew way before Avraham was to really live amongst the broader world, like among human civilization, 
especially the most like enlightened cosmopolitan parts of human civilization and to try to spread our ideas in a very non-threatening, non-confrontational way um, until Avraham. I think what made Avraham unique is that he actually took a militant posture towards idolatry. He didn't just say like, hey, we have this great understanding about the creator, come and learn from us, which might've been the Hebrew approach pre-Avraham. Avraham said, no, idolatry is damaging to humanity and we have to eliminate it. And that might be why the Kadosh Baruch Hu decided to start a Hebrew nation through Avraham, an actual Hebrew nation through Avraham. And from this perspective, maybe we should see Israel, Israel as a radical splinter group from the Hebrews. And the Hebrews themselves really continued with people like Nahor and Levan and Bil'am, who were very integrated into human civilization as spiritual leaders, but saw the Israelites as way too radical, way too extreme in our approach. And that kind of, I went into all that because that, that is, to a certain extent, how I experience, you know, the more like westernized, modern Orthodox position. Like it's essentially the position of Nahor. It's essentially the position of Bilam. Uh, you know, when, by the way, when Bilam speaks, when you actually see Bilam speak in the Torah, he refers to the creator as Yurke Vavke. He's not an idolater. He's somebody who's very loyal to Hashem. He's very loyal to the path of the Hebrews. And he might be trying to have a positive impact on humanity. But he sees Israel as this like dangerous radical group. Yeah, that's very well said. That's fascinating, actually. Um, just to make sure I understand what you're saying in, in terms of how this maps on to our current reality. What you're saying is, is that the diaspora Jews who, who live within ideologies like Torah and Derech Eretz, Torah integrated into the ways of the world, they're actually really, like whether they know it or not, they're actually playing out the paradigm of the ancient Hebrews that predated Israel in that like we're supposed to live amongst the nations, we're supposed to live you know, in an elevated, spiritual, God-oriented lifestyle. But in the end of the day, we exert our influence by being here where we are, devoid of a national framework, and just and just spreading our influence in that way. Is that basically what you're saying? Essentially. And, and I think even the Hebrews who then kind of were adjacent to the formation of Israel, like I, I'd say that was a major machloket between Avraham and Nahor. Like Nahor believed in living in Aram, living in this like major cosmopolitan center, influencing humanity through being an individual who is pious, who is righteous, who is contributing to society. Um, whether you want to call that Torah in Derech Eretz or Torah Umada, like it was the path. I, I mean, I think that's essentially what we see with Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, with Rav uh, Soloveitchik, I think, and also to a certain extent with Gush. Like that is basically, you know, on the international plane. Like I think that that is, right. that is modern orthodoxy or orthodox Judaism. But the path of Avraham was to create a nation, even if Avraham sometimes struggled with that, even if it wasn't so easy for somebody at his stage of life with thousands of followers and no children to really reorient himself to this idea that, no, that, that my mission will be fulfilled through the creation of a nation. You know, I, I could imagine that Avraham was somebody who is very driven to do and, and to create and to change things in the world around him all the time. But, you know, you have to be very patient to say, well, that change will come through my children and grandchildren and great grandchildren. But meanwhile, he had thousands of students. 
He has major world figures, the ruler of Egypt, the ruler of Grar, actually offering him spiritual leadership within their national frameworks. And that's very tempting when you're trying to influence yeah. him, but you don't yet have the national vehicle with which to do it. But, but anyway, yeah, I, I think that ultimately, you know, the people we're speaking about, I, I mean, I think within Israeli society, we can look at that camp as Dati Yosef, like Yosef with Torah. And, you know, they've been fighting, especially what we call like diaspora religious Zionism. Uh, and by the way, this is religious Zionism. I think that is more like, I, I think it's more accurate to call Gush religious Zionist than to call Merkaz religious Zionist. I think they're actually, if, if we're defining Zionism as a Yosef national orientation, as like the adoption of European style nationalism uh, to apply the tools and the talents of Yosef to Jewish national liberation, then they are actually like they are Yosef, they are religious Zionists. Whereas Rav Kook was never a religious Zionist. Rav Kook had nothing to do with the religious Zionist movement. He supported Zionism from the outside. Like Rav Kook supported Zionism from the outside, he never self-identified as a Zionist. In fact, the opposite, he said Zionism is such a shallow ideology, it couldn't sustain a living nation, let alone revive a dead one. So, mm. You know, that was Rav Kook's actual position on Zionism. But he said, Hashem is doing something here. The creator is doing something. The author of history is doing something that we need to support. And he was also very, uh, maybe prematurely, but he, he struggled to create a movement, Degel Yerushalayim, that would not be Zionist, but would be like, would essentially be like a political movement for the force of Yudah. Correct. Correct. Historically, I remember I remember reading actually something about that. You're much more familiar with the history on these things than I am. But yes, I do remember that. And it's well known that even though Rav Kook as a figure is very much associated in people's minds with the Mizrahi slash religious Zionist movement, he, he declined to take part in that in any official capacity, which is very interesting. I just want to I just want to harp on what you're saying now, because uh, these things are these things are kind of coming to mind. I think the second that you that you switch to a national paradigm, uh, like going back to what you were talking about before with the ancient Hebrews who were essentially people living amongst other civilizations, uh, authentically trying to, to influence it for the better, but essentially, you know, groups living amongst whatever civilization happened to be, like back then it was, you know, it was the Mesopotamian societies. Once you introduce the national element into the equation, so then you have to deal with the exclusivity factors that come into there because nationalism is by definition it comes with an exclusive um exclusive notions like it's us and not them um this is the character of the country and not that um and that and that i think is difficult for people um for people to come to come to terms with especially if you've built your ideology around this idea of uh you know torah with this torah with that which is essentially an integrative, an integrative approach. Like I want Torah to be integrated with whatever it is that's going on right now. So again, the second that you bring up the nationalistic consciousness, which is exclusive in nature, it's exclusive in nature, that makes people very uncomfortable. And I think that the discomfort, bringing it back to the, uh, the specific uh, contemporary issue that you brought up before, this backlash um, of uh, Smutris being, uh, being promoted by certain individuals, um, I think it's coming down to that because Smotrich uh, is is very explicit. I think in many ways about the nationalist character um, of what's going on. Um, I think that um, if not explicitly, at least in many ways implicitly, he rejects um, the Western liberal paradigm 
Um, and he could be very aggressive about that. Also in his demeanor, he could be very aggressive about that. So for him to now be, uh, you know, accepted by certain people as, uh, as the ideal representative of the religious Zionist uh, community, and like, again, religious Zionist, how you defined it, um, for him to be accepted as the representative of that, like that makes people very uncomfortable. I think, I think that in the end of the day, that's where it comes down to. Like realizing the exclusive nature of the nationalistic aspect of the Jewish program of the Torah. And uh, yeah, it's uh, difficult to integrate that, especially when you have this idea of being universal, of being, uh, you know, of being able to connect with the nations of the world. When you have like an aggressive, as you as you referred to Avram before, this very militant attitude, it makes people a little squeamish, uh, to put it lightly. I think I think that in the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. Especially when these are Jews who who have really bought in to the ideological paradigm of liberalism and not, and not just the ideological paradigm of liberalism but even liberal positions on social and political issues within that ideological paradigm yes look within what we call zionism within religious zionism or within the more like torani yosef people you know you have liberal and conservative figures liberal and conservative positions but i think it's specifically and and sometimes the conservative torani yosef jews are almost indistinguishable from the Yuda Shimon and Levi Jews. On, on certain issues, they can be. Like, it's hard to tell them apart sometimes. Like what? Like which issues, for example? I'd say in regards to Palestinians uh, sometimes, uh, or territory, you know, like you can have Rabbanim, who are of the tribal persuasion of Yosef, who see Western civilization as like the civilization that we should all be a part of, uh, but self-identify as right and are conservatives and think we shouldn't give up land and see the Palestinians as the enemy, or maybe believe historically there's no such thing as Palestinians. They're just Arabs and they're the enemy. And they might have a lot of practical political overlap with the Yuda, Shimon and Levi Jews on these issues, but it's not, but they're not coming from the same core place as those people. Um, I think Yosef or, or Zionism really uh, lends itself. For example, I think the fact that uh, the Zionist movement utilized a lot of colonial tools and kind of positioned itself in the role of the colonizer and, and to a certain extent still positions itself as a colonizer um, is part of, you know, self-identifying as Western and wanting to self-identify as Western. You know, I think the colonial features of Israeli society are very much driven by Yosef. Me meaning it's interesting, when you look at Jews living in the West Bank, the ones who are living most according to settler colonial structures are the Yosef Jews in Efrat, in Alonshfut, in uh, Neve Daniel, in uh, El Azar, places like that. Whereas if you go to a place like Yitzar, they're, they're not really living according to settler colonial structures. They're just living as a village surrounded by other villages they're at war with but they kind of <laughs> right. they see themselves and they function as like an indigenous population that has a not such a great relationship with the regime not such a great relationship with the army and definitely a very hostile relationship with their non-jewish neighbors um they're not living as colonizers in the way that jews in alonshfut are living as colonizers living behind fences in like affluent western style suburbs with military protection 
you know, monopolizing the natural resources in the area like that, that that's much different from the experience of a Jew in Kabat-Gilad or Yitzhar or, or somewhere like that. Yes, I totally, I totally see what you're saying. That's interesting. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just trying, I'm just trying to think practically how this, like if this, if this is actually the reality that's playing out in Gush Etzion currently, you think, you think that that, you think that that's an accurate portrayal of what, of what is actually going on on the ground in a place like Gush Etzion today, that that the people see themselves as like as colonialist occupiers that are that are not indigenous to the area and don't have like an organic connection to the area no i think they think of themselves as indigenous in the same way that a plant is indigenous i think they know their ancestors are from this land we were expelled from this land we returned to this land and we're natives to it in that sense but i don't think they understand indigenous colonial relations or you know power dynamics or anything that make fighting for indigenous issues meaningful on a political level. I don't think they understand what it means to be an indigenous person in geopolitical context. I think they're like plants that are indigenous. They're like, okay, we're we're from this land, we were taken out of this land and now we're back. So we're indigenous. I think that's as far as they understand it. And I don't think they self-identify as settlers. Well, the, the truth is a lot of them do self-identify as settlers. You hear Jews like that refer to themselves as settlers all the time. Like they use that word. Um, to describe themselves, but they think of it, as most settlers do, as we're the pioneers, we're the settlers on the frontier. It's very romantic. It, you know, it's like a positive word for them. Right. Just the fact that they think of the word settler as a positive word shows that they're operating within a settler colonial mentality. Okay, I hear. I hear. I hear what you're saying. I don't. I don't know. I don't know if everyone has the same connotation with that word settler. Um, but but yeah, I certainly hear what you're saying. I think maybe it could come down to um, like what you were alluding to before, essentially about about an engagement, a full-on engagement with their surroundings, as opposed to being like the fortress on the hill. Like, is that a fair synopsis? So yeah, I think so. Um, I think that ultimately, look when you when you look at these dynamics. Basically, I would say that you have a lot of Jews in Gush Etzion who are probably going to vote for the Yehuda Shimon Levi party, for the Smotrich Ben Gvir Maoz party, but who really identify, who really self-identify as right-wing Westerners. For them, it's just about being right-wing or left-wing or being religious or secular or liberal or conservative, which is... A, problematic because it doesn't fully break down the nuances of Israeli society, and B, expresses where they're at psychologically, that they really are living in the paradigm of Western civilization. Just the fact that they self-identify as conservative or liberal, as right or left, as religious or secular, already speaks to the fact that they're living in a certain ideological paradigm. And that's the ideological paradigm of the West, which would indicate that at least right now, again, I do think these things are fluid and I think uh, we're capable of kind of moving between tribes as we grow and develop in our lives. But I think right now, they're definitely functioning as expressions of the tribal force of Yosef. Something that was just coming to mind as you were saying this, I think that I think that contrasting this to the last election where we had Bennett's party, despite being very weak, rising to a leadership position, um, and this hodgepodge coalition that no one thought in a million years would ever actualize. Um, I think that in many ways you can say that that was an experiment um, for the Torani uh, Yosef-oriented Jews to see just how far they can take it. <laughs> like how far 
in the Yosef direction can they take things and still remain stable? Uh, like, can they integrate the Arab parties? Can they integrate the assimilationist parties? Like, how, how far can they go before, like, losing their Torani identity? Um, and I think that that's something that we're seeing this time around, that many, many people, I mean, this was even before uh, before the government collapsed. I think that many people were were coming to the realization that, well, actually, I think we went too far. I think that we're I think that we're trying to integrate a little bit too much. I think that we're selling out too much on our identity. Um, and it's, it's not it's not as easy to, to make this thing stable as we thought, um, which is why, uh, I mean, the polls are indicating this, that people that vote that, that many people that voted for Bennett's last time around are going to be, as you said, voting for the more Yehuda, um, like nationalist camp parties, whether it's uh, Ben Gvir, Smotrich or, uh, or something else. Right. Bennett really was their guy. I think Naftali Bennett definitely represented where a lot of Gushnikim saw themselves. Yeah. And also, by the way, I think the um, the conclusions people reached as to why Bennett is no longer their guy are problematic. Meaning, I think that the, the, for me, the problem with Bennett was not that he included Mansour Abbas and the Ram Party in his government. In, in fact, I, I was totally okay with that. I would have loved to see Likud and Shas and Smotrich and Gimel, you know, sitting together with Ram. I think that would have been a great opportunity to recreate our relationships with the Palestinians here. But a lot of the Jews, like, you know, we're talking about the Torani, Yosef, or modern Orthodox, whatever, Gushnikim, the, the Jews of Gush Etzion, who supported Bennett, who identified with Bennett, who saw him as their political leader, like, the reason they feel betrayed by him is because he was inclusive of Palestinians, because he brought Mansour Abbas into the government, not because of his treatment of like socio-cultural issues or Jewish identity issues in our state. Like they didn't get those. They didn't understand those issues. Hmm. And so I but but they definitely are done with Bennett. And as you said, they've moved over to parties that they might not fully understand. Meaning I'm not sure if the average religious Zionist in uh, Efrat who's planning to vote for Smotrich, you know, really understands what he's voting for. <laughs> right, right. Well, they might find out uh, sooner than later because uh, look, it, uh, all the indications seem to be pointing that um, Smotrich is building quite quite a bit of traction. Um, and it's and it's and it's and it's interesting just to just to point this out what you what you mentioned in the beginning of the conversation about uh, about Shas and its leader Aryeh Deri that strategically they're very much touting themselves as the Netanyahu ally um, like that's a big selling point for them so similarly um, we're seeing that by Smotrich just recently so Smotrich came out with uh, with some very very heavy reforms for the judicial system in this country which, as I'm sure the listeners know, is a hot topic vis-a-vis -vis Netanyahu since he's still on trial. Um, and these reforms would basically make the whole case a moot point. Um, so he's, uh, at the same time, his, uh, his, main, his main selling point is that he is the, is that he is the flag bearer of the, um, of the more nationalistic camp, but at the same time uh, pushing forward policies that would very, very much help Netanyahu and his, uh, his interests move forward. So it looks like we're going to find out what that looks like, because that seems to be the direction that the election is going in. It's the direction the elections are going in, but I actually expect Netanyahu to attempt to form a government with Gantz before he tries Smotrich or Ben-Gvir. I think that uh, Netanyahu really? 
for two reasons. Uh, for two reasons, I think number one, um, internationally, Netanyahu doesn't want to be seen as forming a government with people like Smotrich and Ben Gvir. It would just create headaches for him diplomatically, and he's not yeah. that image. I hear that. I hear. And the second reason is because I think Netanyahu also he always wants to leave an option for himself if his first coalition doesn't work out. Meaning, if he can very easily form a second government with the national religious, um, then whoever his initial coalition partners are, in this case, let's say Gantz, has to behave. Meaning Netanyahu leaves himself options, so whoever his coalition partners are in the first government he forms can't go too crazy with their demands or their behavior. Right. I hear that. I hear that. I mean, two elections ago, that's that's kind of what he tried to do with teaming up with uh, teaming up with Gantz, essentially. You're saying this would be like a reiteration of that. I think so. I could, way. Be, I, yeah. I could be wrong, but that's where I see it going. I don't see Netanyahu as wanting the international headaches of being in a government with the Haredim and national religious, especially with all the uh, sensationalism and hysteria surrounding Ben Gvir and Smotrich. Like, I, I, it's not a good look, you know, for Netanyahu. Remember, everybody would be looking at Israel within this Western paradigm. And that's the problem, meaning Ben Gvir is problematic and worrisome only when you're really stuck in this Western ideological paradigm. Correct. The, the, Correct. The, the truth is what makes Ben Gvir problematic, in my opinion, is really just his position on Palestinians. But that's not really different from Yair Lapid or Benny Gantz or even Merav Mecheli, meaning I think all the Zionist parties see Palestinians as unwanted enemies in our land. I think they've all reached different conclusions as to how to solve that contradiction. Um, many would like to just give away the land underneath those Palestinians, which also happens to be the cradle of Jewish civilization. So they're also like escaping from their identity to a certain extent and, and ensuring that Israel be a Western country. I think part of the two-state solution, at least from the Israeli perspective, from the perspective of the Israeli politicians pushing it, was that it allows us to maintain this Western identity. Like Yudah and Shomron, Jerusalem, these places get in the way of us just being an Am Amin. Yes. And, and I think for somebody like Ben Gvir or some of his partners who are coming from much more of a Jewish history mindset um, or Torani mindset, you know, the answer to how to deal with a hostile population in our land is very different because giving up land is not an option. And if we have an enemy, we should fight that enemy until that enemy either doesn't exist anymore or is no longer our enemy. So I think that all of Israeli society should probably shift in its orientation towards the Palestinian question. Um, I mean, that's a larger conversation about how we and the Palestinians see each other and our abilities to even engage the narrative of the other without fear. But Ben Gvir is not necessarily any worse than many of the other figures on our political map. In fact, I'd argue that uh, Benny Gantz has killed a lot more Palestinians than Ben Gvir ever did. So I, so I think making him problematic because of his view towards Palestinians, it only makes sense when viewed within this very narrow Western context that tries to cast Ben Gvir and his partners as like the Israeli version of the European far right or the American 
Ku Klux Klan. Like that just doesn't fit. That's not who they are. When you try to sloppily impose a Western political spectrum or a Western political paradigm onto our societal map, you end up trying to cast, it's like trying to cast the Haredim as like the Christian right of Israel. They're not the Christian right of Israel. They're a totally different thing. Correct. Yeah. In any case, uh, this has been kind of a double episode here. I'm so happy and grateful that you've come on and uh, we were able to have this conversation. I think it's uh, th there's a lot to unpack with this election and where we see Israeli society going. And I, and I think we were able to really delve into some of the deeper issues here. So I, I'm really happy about that and uh, always a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, this was great, Yuda. Thanks so much. If listeners want to see more of your work or your thoughts, is there somewhere that can go? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, they can uh, they can head over to my Spotify channel called uh, Beit Shammai. Uh, nice. <laughs> um, I have some of my lectures that uh, that I give uh, that I give in the old city up on uh, up on YU Torah, which is a which is a very big repository of uh, of, uh, of Torah lectures. So they can just uh, you just Google my name um, or search my name on that website if they're interested. And yeah, I think that's about it. Well, we, we could definitely put that in the show notes. Yes, Shammai Siskin, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Yuna. Until next time. This is Yudha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. If listeners are interested in checking out the show notes for this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage. It's 